Hi everybody, Liam here, and I'm back with another episode of EBY Q&A. EBY Q&A is a new thing I'm doing where I'm dropping some straight up one-on-one interviews in with the regular East Bay Yesterday episodes, which are, you know, more highly produced narratives. Anyway, this is a very special show because it's the very first podcast I've ever released that was taped in front of a live audience. What you're about to hear is my conversation with Oakland-based author Jenny O'Dell about her book, How to Do Nothing. It was recorded on May 2nd at Wolfman Books, directly across the street from the iconic Tribune Tower. And it was a ton of fun, except for one little problem. So many people showed up that we couldn't fit everyone in. So for those of you who couldn't make it in person, I hope this is the next best thing. Our conversation is a little different than what you'd normally hear on East Bay yesterday, a bit more philosophical perhaps, but living in Oakland was a big inspiration for this book, and Jenny weaves Oakland history throughout its pages. So stay tuned, because we talk about everything from Oakland's oldest tree, to the Chapel of the Chimes, uh, to the joys of AC Transit. Oh, and a huge shout out to Katie McMurrin for recording this event, and to Jacob and Justin for making sure that everything ran smoothly at Wolfman. Last thing, thank you to my Patreon supporters. Uh, I give you guys some personal shout outs during the end credits, but most importantly, I wouldn't be able to put out this episode and do free events like this without your support. So I just wanted to let you know how grateful I am And uh, speaking of events, I have a few more coming up soon, so check out eastbayyesterday.com for the details. Okay, on to the show. Hi everybody, thanks for coming out tonight. I'm Liam from East Bay Yesterday. So we're here tonight to talk about Jenny O'Dell's new book, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. And this book is so necessary right now. Uh, Here's an example of why I couldn't stop myself from checking Twitter like every 15 minutes when I was trying to force myself to write down and sit down and write this introduction. Um, And it's, it's not just like for the obvious reason that this book is important, that apps are sucking our attention spans and destroying them. But because, as you warn us in the book, if you're ever in a disaster, those who help you will likely not be your Twitter followers, but your neighbors. So as those of you who have already read it know, uh, this book isn't nihilistic or fatalistic, as as the title might imply. Jenny frames doing nothing not as a cop-out, but as a way to clear space and focus on what's really important. This book's focus on reprioritizing local connections to nature, to our neighbors, and to our own inner selves is why I wanted to call this event How to Do Nothing in Oakland, because Jenny's insights on how to challenge the forces that are disconnecting us from nature and from each other and from ourselves, a lot of those insights in the book emerged from this place, from Oakland. Jenny challenges the placelessness that's becoming ever more ubiquitous in our so-called digital world. She writes, I want to argue for a new placefulness that yields sensitivity and responsibility to the historical and the ecological. 
building or rebuilding those connections with our past and with our natural world shouldn't be considered a whim or a privilege or a luxury. As we'll discuss tonight, this awareness and care is a matter of survival. Less than 200 years ago, Oakland and the Oakland Hills were home to thousands of old-growth redwood trees, some of the biggest the world has ever seen, some that were even taller than uh, the Tribune Tower right across the street from us right now. And all those trees were cut down during the gold rush, except one. Writing about Oakland's last remaining old-growth redwood tree, Jenny says, Surely as the needles that grow from old survivor are connected to its ancient roots, the present grows out of the past. This rudeness is something we desperately need when we find ourselves awash in an amnesiac present and the chain store aesthetic of the virtual. Oakland has a long tradition of radical thinkers and Jenny, I think, is helping to keep that tradition alive. This book challenges a capitalistic culture that dictates not just what we do, but how we think. It challenges a culture of capitalism that dictates not just what businesses or kinds of homes are in our city, but every aspect of the ecology and the geography around us. And although Jenny is, is quick to say this isn't really a self-help book, it does offer some answers as well as presenting these challenges. The introduction to the book states that awareness is the seed of responsibility. Of course, what that implies is that action must follow awareness. While trying to understand the place that she grew up, Jenny visited a creek near her childhood home. And for those of you who might need a little motivation to break out of your normal routine and look at the world a little differently, I'd like to share one more passage from the book before we start the conversation. Jenny writes, snaking through the midst of the banal every day is a deep weirdness, a world of flowerings, decompositions, and seepages, of mammalian crawling things, of spores and lacy fungal filaments, of minerals reacting and things being eaten away all just on the other side of a chain link fence. Mm. So if that doesn't inspire you to go out and explore, <laughs> I don't know what will. Ladies and gentlemen of Wolfman Books, please give a warm welcome to Jenny Odell. <laughs> All right, so in the book you, you say that, what does it, or you ask, I should say, what does it mean to construct digital worlds when the actual world around us is crumbling right before our eyes? And I was wondering if you were inspired to write that by all the potholes in Oakland. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, we have really, really bad potholes on my street. It's literally actually. crumbling. Um, yeah, I wasn't directly inspired by that, but I, so I talk about growing up in more kind of the San Jose area and I work at Stanford now. So I've always been kind of struck by this um, juxtaposition of these companies that are putting out products that are contributing to a sense of placelessness. Um, and then you kind of turn and look and there's the Santa Cruz mountains and it's, I don't know, um, being kind of caught in between those two types of realities kind of influence that. Yeah. And now also potholes will <laughs> remind you of that. <laughs> so something that a lot of the reviews have mentioned and congratulations on all the positive reviews that the book has been oh, getting. Thanks. Something that a lot of them have mentioned is that you were inspired as you write in the introduction to the book by, it was the fall of 2016, President Trump had just been elected, and a more local tragedy, of course, was the ghost ship fire. And at the time, you were just feeling devastated, emotionally drained, confused, sad, anxious, and that you had been 
booked to give a speech at a conference, a keynote address, and you didn't know what it was going to be about, so you just sat down and wrote how to do nothing on your computer and then walked across or around the block to the Rose Garden in your neighborhood, the Morecambe Rose Garden over by Lake Merritt in Oakland. And so I'm wondering what is it about that specific place that inspired the philosophy that you put forth in the book? So I don't know how many of you have been to the, the Morecambe Rose Garden, but it's, it's off of Grand. And um, so if you've been there, you know that it's, it's really, really beautiful. And for me, I think it's... Um, it's had to do with how often I go there. Um, so it's almost like it feels almost not my front yard, but you know, it's a five minute walk. Um, so it's easy for me to get to. And it's sort of, you know, there's places like Yosemite, right? Where you go and you go there to ha like be in awe of nature and it's, it's amazing. And then you, then you leave and you're like, I'm not there anymore. I'm just in the sort of like fallen every day. Um, and I think I, I really like places that are kind of somewhere in between where it still feels continuous with the rest of your day. Um, obviously it feels different, but it's this kind of place where you can easily go to drop out of this forward pressing productive time, even if that's only 15 or 20 minutes. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like more yeah. kind of woven in with my my everyday. So um, I think it was like sort of a deep familiarity with the space and comfort. Like I get a lot of comfort from being there. I, I feel like I know the inhabitants very, fairly well, you know, human and non-human. Um, I know a lot of the gardeners there now. They made sure the fountain was turned on when they took the photo for the New York Times re review. Um, yeah. So cause they, they knew, yeah. they were like, do you have a photo shoot today? And they were like, made sure the fountain was turned on. Um, and, you know, Grace and the cat and the turkeys and yeah. all the different birds. So it's kind of like a space of, um, you know, obviously it's a park, so it encourages a, a certain type of being. Um, it doesn't demand a lot from you, but it's also that feeling of familiarity. Uh, it was it provided the opportunity for me to think about why I feel like viscerally so different when I sit there versus mm -hmm. kind of at that time, especially the rest of my day. I'm really glad in the book when you describe the park, you specify that it's a public park mm -hmm. um, and that the origins of it are that it was a WPA era project created during the Great Depression to you know create beauty in Oakland and also to help put people back to work and that it's a public space. And it made me think of the contrast between these things in San Francisco that are all over the place now called POPOs, which stands for privately owned public open space. Um, I used to work in downtown San Francisco and I would eat lunch in the POPOs and they're terrible. I mean, there's like security guards, there's cameras, there's not much nature. The statues are usually really ugly. And so I'm just wondering if you can talk about that contrast between real public spaces and these kind of quasi public spaces that are yeah. sort of masquerading as parks but are not parks in terms yeah. of like the thought that they inspire when you're there. Right, right. Um, so when I originally gave How to Do Nothing as a talk at that conference, I have I have a slide with an image of one of those popos um, <laughs> with the, they always have like metal chairs yeah. and it's also usually like very ambiguous like yes it's public but they kind of make it look like it's not so you're like I'm not really sure or there's there's also some interesting instances where some of the chairs belong to a business and some of them don't and you're just kind of supposed to know like which ones are which um, so they're yeah I guess they're technically public spaces but. I prize the, the Rose Garden as like a very obviously public space where you are not required to do anything to be there. So you don't you're not you don't need to pretend to 
be thinking about eventually buying something. Um, you don't you don't need to. I mean, there's literally no limit to the amount of time you can be there. I've been there all day before. You know, um, even architecturally, um, it's sort of designed where you know there's so many different places you could sit and and ways that you could walk through. Um, it's a very inviting space. And so, and yeah, that doesn't make these sort of demands on you. So I, I draw that distinction like in the chapter between uh, faux public spaces, not just like popos, but like places that are clearly not public spaces that take on the attributes of a public space. So I talk about Universal Studios City, City Walk. I don't know if anyone's City, City Walk. Yeah. So it's like, it's basically a theme. It's an extension of a theme park, but it has the, it, it has a kind of artificial architectural diversity of course you're just supposed to shop that's and if you don't shop and behave in the way that you're supposed to it's very easy to police that yeah a minute ago you mentioned the kind of labyrinthine nature of the rose garden and another sort of labyrinthine structure in oakland that you mentioned in the original talk i don't think it's in the book but i think in the in the how to do nothing presentation was the um chapel of the chimes over at the end of piedmont avenue the julia morgan designed columbarium full of urns and ashes. And mm-hmm. in the book, you talk about how it's, you you appreciate the fact that it's maze-like and that there's no maps that say like, you are here. So it's almost <laughs> like inviting you to get lost in it. What yeah. is it about sort of like wandering around in this semi-lost state that you find inspiring creatively? I will just say like, to, to that point about the map, I don't know if anyone here has noticed this, but if you go to the Chapel of the Times, there is a map that is highly detailed because you know, there's all these little rooms, but it doesn't say you are here. So when you look at it, you're like, <laughs> like, oh, the, I yes, I am in a very complex space, uh, but you have like no idea where you are. It's like an M.C. Escher painting in some yeah, of the walls. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, and then the way that you know, there's different levels, so it's very. I mean, I'm amazed. I go there all the time, and I still feel like I occasionally will find a new room. Yeah, I mean, that's totally. been like years, and I go there a lot. So anyway. Um, I um, just like aesthetically am fascinated with the idea of a space that's not technically very big, but that you can walk a long distance through because of the way that it's designed. So um, it's not walking through a space and it's not standing still in a space. It's like something in between those two. And I also think that wandering, I mean, I also, you know, frequently after going there, we'll go to the cemetery because it's right next door. And there's also similarly no obvious way to walk through that cemetery. Um, and if you are so lucky to have, you know, an hour or so there and, um, you're not in a hurry, I, I'm fascinated with like why you take the routes that you do. Um, it's kind of this, like this, um, feels like free will. I don't know. Right. Like you just, you're kind of like, I'm going to go this way just cause I feel like it, you know, like when do you get to have that feeling <laughs> like ever? Um, and so I, you know, like I go there with like, you know, on different days, like, oh, I want to go see if there are any night herons in the pond or see if like the tulip tree is flowering yet or, um, but it's, it feels like this very undirected from, from outside kind of activity where it's just proceeding from like pure, just like, I feel like it, or I have an instinct to go in this direction. Yeah. Now I know what you're talking about. I feel the same way in terms of going to the same spaces over and over again, but still finding new ways to explore them. When I'm up in the Oakland Hills exploring, you know, mm-hmm. Redwood Regional Park, Joaquin Miller Park, Sibley, these places that I've been going to for years, super frequently, but occasionally I'll still stumble across a trail I've never noticed before, mm-hmm. like a no-name trail or some kind of side trail. And it's like uh, invigorating to be like, ooh, here's a new one, let's see where it goes. Yeah, I think just being surprised 
is a really important feeling. I think I'm constantly seeking out that feeling. And I love, yeah, that kind of the feeling of turning a corner and seeing like a new side trail or something like that. It's just a great feeling. Yeah. So speaking of the Oakland Hills, uh, one of the Oakland landmarks that you mentioned in the book is Old Survivor, Oakland's oldest tree, as I mentioned in the little prologue there, um, the last remaining redwood tree in Oakland. And I'm wondering if you can share for the people who haven't read the book yet, the little metaphor that you create when you compare well, yeah. you know what I'm talking yeah. about. And then also, just if you can talk a little bit about how you came up with that comparison. It seems like the type of thing that would have struck you when you're in nature. And yeah. I'm just wondering, you know, if a lot of those thoughts that came to you in the book happened when you were just exploring the nature of Oakland and, and the wider Bay Area. Yeah. So, yeah, in the introduction, I, I compare Old Survivor to um, a tree from a Taoist story called The Useless Tree, or that's how it's sometimes translated. And that story is about a carpenter who sees a very large, impressively large oak, gnarled oak tree um, and is sort of like a, disdainful about it. Like, oh, it only got to be that size because it's useless because of its shape um, to me as a carpenter. So it's not a good timber tree. Um, and then he goes to sleep and the tree shows up in a dream and basically says, um, who are you to call me useless? You don't even know what useful is and you're, you're a mortal man and you will die. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, it's this kind of like joke about like useful for what, which is like a question I keep coming back to in the book is like, okay, productivity, productive of what and for whom and why. There's, there's a detail that I actually only noticed on the second reading of the story that the tree was so large that it shaded several thousand teams of oxen. <laughs> so it's a really big tree and it's, it's extremely useful. It's like, it's a, it's taking care of all of these living beings. Right. And so it's like, it's basically a story about this narrow idea of usefulness that if you are a carpenter who only sees planks, then yes, like this tree will look useless to you. And one of the things that the tree says in the story is uselessness has been very useful for me because it's allowed the tree to escape being cut down. And similarly, Old Survivor, the actual tree in Oakland um, was kind of, it's weirdly shaped as well. And it's not, it wasn't big compared to other redwood trees. And so, and it's also in kind of an odd location. It's kind of hard to get to. So it was similarly spared by its uselessness. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that comparison. So the book's not just about nature. It's also about kind of affirming or reaffirming our humanity and our care for ourselves and each other. And one of the places that in Oakland that you do that, that you mentioned in the book is on AC Transit. <laughs> so I'm just wondering if you can talk about, yeah. you know, you describe like taking the bus from your apartment to your studio. And I'm just wondering if you can speak to the usefulness of public transportation as more than just a place from going from point A to point B. Yeah. Um, so I'm very lucky to live um, on the 12 line, um, which goes right to my studio um, by Jack London Square. And I feel like I've always been very into taking the bus. Like I pride myself on knowing where all the bus lines go. And for me, I talk about it in the book as kind of uh, one of the last spaces where we're thrown together with strangers that we have no instrumental reason to be around. It's in a chapter called Ecology of Strangers, which like that's the whole argument of that chapter is that you should pay attention to people and, and creatures that you have no obvious reason to be paying attention to. And so it's this kind of, you know, an opportunity to sit in a space with others who are going, you know, it's, and to consider like these 
every person here is going somewhere for some reason and it you have to just kind of just sit with that and sit with the reality of other people outside of your kind of sphere of whatever i mean i think like there's been a lot that's been written and said about the filter bubble online but i think there's almost like a uh, a bigger filter bubble around that, or like a filter bubble mentality um, that is encouraged by things, you know, like algorithmic recommendations to you, where you kind of get into this mindset where you're like, I'm only going to pay attention to the things that will help me gain something, you know, yeah, or yeah. that like I have some obvious reason to be into. And then you kind of start to filter out everything and everyone that isn't part of that. And yeah. so just sitting on the bus. Uh, not just on the bus, you know, you sit on the bus and you look at, you know, it's it's slow. So, like, you, you have a long time to kind of consider, like, everyone walking down the street. And it's just, for me, it's, like, an important reminder of the reality of other people's realities. Yeah, no, totally. And then getting back to this issue of public space versus private space, hearing you describe that uh, scenario reminds me of the situation where, I think it was, like, a year or two ago, there was some startup it was basically like, we're gonna, we have this revolutionary idea. It's gonna be this mode of transportation that like drives around the city in a certain route and picks some people up and drops some people off. And we're gonna, and, and people were tweeting at them like, it's a bus. You, yeah. you just reinvented a bus. They already exist everywhere. <laughs> Except yeah. they're public goods, not right. you know, something that people are gonna try to milk as much cash as possible out of. Yeah, and that also kind of gets it. I mean, you heard me say this earlier at Heyday, but um, I think a lot about um, in the kind of rhetoric of, of disrupting, you know, um, there's often this kind of implication of replacement. Like, you know, there's there's some stuff here and I'm just going to like clear it away and I'm going to make this like brand new thing and it's going to be perfectly designed from the beginning so it'll just be perfect forever. Whereas like, you know, so a lot of what I'm advocating for in this book is a version of progress um, that is more observant and and more based around you know listening to what and who is already there um, that could that could use care and attention and so like to me it's just like so emblematic right like I invented the bus it's like there is something already here that like uh, is needs support <laughs> um, so yeah. yeah yeah no I mean it's yeah. the same thing with libraries too there was the famous debacle last year where a guy wrote a column for Forbes that was basically saying why do we need libraries when we have Amazon oh my god <laughs> <laughs> um I'll, you don't have to answer that. Uh, <laughs> um, so one of my favorite concepts from the book is, uh, as you put it, looking at reality rather than through it. It reminded me of when I was planning the Long Lost Oakland walking tour. I was you know, sp spending a lot of time walking around downtown Oakland, just like staring at everything, trying to figure out if there was some kind of story behind it or historical significance that I could research and then incorporate into the walking tour. And I'm just wondering if since you've uh, put out the book, if there's other examples or, you know, while you were researching the book, maybe if there's examples of things in Oakland that all of a sudden you found yourself looking at rather than looking through and, you know, what kind of realizations that came about as a result of that observation. Um, yeah, I mean, I think most of the examples um, or a lot of the examples in the book are, are ecological because um, as someone who grew up you know, around here. Um, so I've been, I, I sh I've been in the same bioregion my whole life, and I talk a lot about bioregionalism. It's been striking to me that I've been looking at or pointing my eyes at things that I didn't know the names of until like two years ago, which is kind of crazy to me. Um, I, I sometimes have this philosophical question of when was actually the first time I saw a cedar waxwing? Was mm -hmm. it 
when I when that went into my eyes or like or when I knew what a cedar waxwing was and saw it and was like hey you know like the first time I saw one and knew what it was I got so excited that this like this poor woman was walking by and I was like I like dragged her over and I was like look there's cedar waxwings in that tree and she was like huh like they're actually fairly common around here you know um, and um, and they make this really um, very noticeable like high, very high pitched kind of squeaky noise. And over time, I've it's like I have this weird, deep, buried memory of hearing that. Like I know that I know that I heard that, and I just sort of didn't. It was like just below the level of consciousness. Um, and so I've been having just nonstop. Like once once you start paying attention to something or some layer, and that could be historical or ecological or both, as you probably know, like you just start seeing it everywhere. And yeah. your example of the bird sounds is. Um... Is, it, it reminds me that in the book, the context of looking at reality, you're not just referring to visual observation, but also hearing things that you wouldn't normally be listening for when you kind of train your brain to think differently. Yeah. I also, I think animals are, you know, the fact that animals are paying attention to us because we are also in the world um, has been a really interesting reminder to me. So I, I talk in the book about some crows that I have befriended in my neighborhood that um, because they can recognize human faces uh, now will kind of accost me like on the street uh, for a peanut um, and uh, the other day I was walking down the street and looking at my phone and one of them landed like very close to my head and kind of like yelled at me like it was like Meh, you know like I was uh, you know there was no one else around there no like, really wanted around, a peanut yeah. or I don't know I mean who knows right like who knows what they're thinking but um, but you know it's like the, it's this funny thing where you think like I don't know when you're when you're in that world right like you're just totally in it like stuff is still going on around you and like the, meanwhile there's this bird that's like staring at you because you are after all like a body that's walking down the street um so I've always uh, found that to be a really helpful reminder yeah. yeah so as someone who focuses a lot on history um I wanted to ask a couple questions about sort of how why you stress the importance of historical context in the book um something that you write is quote Deepening one's attention to place will likely lead to awareness of one's participation in history. So I guess I'm just wondering if you can explain why you feel like it's so important to expand our awareness beyond the present context of, you know, the now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's a matter of survival. Um, I, I think that... I mean, some of it's just what I was saying earlier about, like, there's something already here and we would do well to be attentive to it. But it's also like, there's something so crazy to me about the idea that so much has been done and fought for and written about and it's all freely available to us, like, at the library or, like, you know, in the stories of, like, people who are still here, you know, um, and that, like, we're so kind of faced forward all the time or kind of stuck in this um, anxiety-filled present that we don't have access to that information. I mean, to me, that sounds like a person acting without memory, um, which yeah. would be would make no sense. So I was very lucky uh, while writing the book. I live right next to Walden Pond Books, which is a great bookstore. Um, but I also had access to the Stanford Library. And there's some, you know, you can pretty much find anything you want in there. And, yeah. um, and it was really um, a lesson in, like, how... It's, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, I feel like, in, in sort of historical consciousness where there's a lot of very relevant, not not even like kind of, I, I feel like there's this weird association with history as like something like inert or like dusty, you know, mm -hmm. but it's like there's information there that is highly relevant to the present 
for our survival in the present. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and the traces of it are just everywhere. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the big critiques that you have in the book of the kind of capitalist structure that we live in is that things that are deemed um, non-productive are devalued. And there's been um, something I've read about a, a bit lately regarding how history majors are declining really rapidly in colleges because people just see it as like basically an unproductive major. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or even, um, so I talk um, in the book about Walden too, which was, there, I have a chapter about commu 1960s communes as like a, a an attempted sort of escape. Um, the which, back to the land movement. Yeah, which in some cases turned into this Walden two experiment. So Walden two, if you haven't read it, it's a utopian novel uh, from, oh, now I can't remember. It was originally written, I think, in the 40s, but it became popular in the 60s. And it's uh, it's not, it reads like something straight out of Silicon Valley. It's like a technocrat's dream. Um, so it's this like eerily perfect society that is basically a dictatorship, although it's never described that way. And it's been all designed by this one guy um, who has basically behavior. It's so the book was written by a behavioral scientist. Uh, it's written by B.F. Skinner, who made the Skinner box. Um, and so the, the idea is that everyone has been behaviorally conditioned to be happy. So um, all of his answers to questions about dictatorship or free will are sort of like, well, everyone is happy because we condition them that way. So they have free will, but they're also all doing what's best for them. Um, and so anyway, um, there's this funny detail in, in that book where um, his, the study of history has been done away with in Walden too, because because he basically describes it as like the he the guy running the whole you know operation is like uh history is just you know it has no it has no relevance to the present it's sort of in the past um it's very much the sort of like history it was a series of, of winners and losers and the and that's that and we're not kind of like that's not relevant to us in in, in the present um yeah. and so i thought and the library is this sort of shrunken thing that has like entertainment books only Huh. So I found that very telling. I'm just reminded about how important history is and how much people value it by thinking back to last week. I was on Berkeley's campus and there was a celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Third World Liberation Front strike, um, which was the famous movement. Uh, there was a coalition of black, Asian American, Latino American, Native American students who saw that the curriculum didn't reflect uh, their histories, their life experiences were told through the lens of, you know, white patriarchal supremacy and basically went on strike. I mean, started in SF State and then spread to Berkeley. And these students um, were willing to put their bodies on the line. I mean, they were literally beaten, clubbed by police officers. There was mass arrests. And this was all for people fighting um, for the right for their history to be told and shared and celebrated. Yeah. You know, I think that your your observation about how history is of thought of as dusty is very true in a lot of cases. And then you still see, you know, not only in the 60s, but look at what's happening now across America. There's all these fights over school textbooks, over how history is going to be taught and what version of, you know, the Civil War, for example, is going to be taught. So um, yeah. I think some people do really understand you know how important it is to have a grasp on history and how it can be used yeah and also i mean i think i especially in the conclusion i'm really also trying to push against the this idea of linear time like linear historical time because I, personally when i was going back and and researching things for the book i kept having these moments of recognition in all different eras of history so i talk about the garden school of epicurus and it's like that sounds so much like the the communes or even think you know things that people say now where it's like you have this 
disgust with corruption and um, everything that was kind of going on in the city and you and so you form this garden school where you know it's like free admission and everyone grows vegetables and talks about philosophy and I'm like that sounds great (laughs) I would join that today Um, so I don't know I just I feel like uh, there there are multiple instances and sort of things that I researched for the book where I, I recognized something that was not even even analogous to the present but it's just literally the same problem yeah, no, I'm glad you brought up that issue of the, you know, challenging the kind of linear conception of history and this idea that time moving forward is always progress. Because in the book, you coined a term manifest dismantling um, that I really appreciate. Um, and it's a challenge to this concept of manifest destiny, which was this you know 19th century idea that the United States had a moral obligation and that it was just for, you know, basically the United States to take over the American continents. And you describe manifest dismantling as kind of undoing some of that damage, sort of decolonizing a lot of the problems that were, you know, put forth on the on the earth by this ideology of manifest destiny. And you give an example in the book of the Friends of Saucel Creek and what they did up there. Can you tell people about what how they kind of dismantled uh, something? Yeah, they literally dismantled yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then other examples maybe of manifest dismantling in in the Bay Area? Yeah, so that story was especially interesting for me because like years and years ago before I lived here, I I walked along the area of Sausal Creek that has kind of a trail. And I remember the time thinking because it looked natural, I just completely assumed like, oh, what a great like holdover from, you know, like this must have been spared development or something. I don't know, I just thought that like it had always looked that way or something. and then fast forward to now, I found out that it had been basically restored by this group called Friends of Sausal Creek, which is basically people who live around there, starting in the 90s. And I was just very inspired by, uh, when I was talking to Mark, who's the head of that group, the amount of work that it took to actually remove the concrete that was on top of what was in then the creek, and then having to plant all of that stuff. And then, you know, a lot of it dies and you have to maintain it. and. It's been long enough that even when you hear him talk about it, it's like you can hear how much work it is to keep doing this. And so uh, that to me is, and I have some other you know examples in the in that chapter about like, okay, I don't have a problem with work. I mean, it's surprisingly for a book called How to Do Nothing. Um, <laughs> like if you, I don't have a I don't have a problem with a sense of purpose or like I think there's a lot of creative energy and a lot of um, you know desire to do something, but I would love to see that first of all, divested from something like the attention economy and these ideas of personal productivity and then kind of replanted in these areas that are right in front of us or very close to us as something that I, that I consider that very productive. It just doesn't have the what we're used to, the kind of structure of like there was nothing and then I made a thing and now there's a new thing in the world. Like that's kind of like how we talk about productivity. So, so the other example I give is of a, a dam that was removed in Carmel um, and just like how much work it took to not only remove that dam, but basically re-engineer a new riverbed that has uh, fish-friendly habitats, um, which when you see like drone footage of, of that riverbed at the beginning, I compare it to, it looks like Minecraft because it's like, yeah. it's so raw and it's just <laughs> like, looks, it looks very manufactured. And then over time it will come to look more natural and then you'll have someone like me come along you know and be like oh isn't this a great holdover from a more natural time yeah. um so anyway i just think that there's um i 
I it's like I'm sort of trying to not only question this linearity and this idea of uh, progress and productivity, but but in in that kind of turnaround, like take that energy and direct it toward these kind of projects of restoring, but re- restoration as something that is productive. My my version of productive. Yeah, no, definitely, because you think the word dismantling would imply there is some kind of destruction or negation, but you're describing creation you know, allowing a flourishing of life to come back and all these kind of positive aspects. Or just maintenance. Even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you compare habitat restoration in the kind of physical world to habitat restoration of our own kind of mental geographies. Can you explain that connection a little bit that you draw in the book? Yeah. Um, so I talk about how um, it was weirdly through bird watching that I realized w- what my biggest problem was with Facebook and Twitter. So I talk about bird time and bird space. So um, if you are into bird watching, you know that there's, you know, um, uh, knowing where and when you are is very important for understanding what you're looking at. I mean, that's true of anything like plants, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so even within a certain species, right, like uh, scrub jays are more <clears throat> blue in one direction. And if you go inland, they become duller blue, you know, or uh, different songs, different times of year. If you look in a bird book, like the, all the versions of the bird that they have to show during all the different times of year, it looks like a completely different bird when it's over here and then it migrates. So at a certain point, you have to become attentive to temporal and spatial context to understand what you're looking at. Um, that's why the app iNaturalist works so well. If anyone here uses iNaturalist, it's you know you can take a photo of a plant or if you're lucky, an animal, um, and it'll give you some guesses of what it is. But a lot of that is enabled by the fact that it has information about you know when it is and where you were. So in kind of learning learning my birds, um, I. Uh, I was like, oh, this is what's missing from information that I get on things like Twitter or Instagram, which is now asynchronous, right? So it's just, it's information that's being, that I, in many cases, didn't ask for, um, wasn't intending to look at that at that particular moment, being thrown at me in a jumble with other information that's unrelated. And I think that there's something deeply disturbing about seeing a joke immediately followed by something really horrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and But this is like something we've come to expect. And so I, I kind of spend that chapter trying to imagine a kind of social network that was responsive to time and place because yeah. I, I, you know, this book, it's not, um, it's not an anti-technology book and it's also not anti some form of social media. I do think, you know, especially as we're gonna, you know, be experiencing more and more extreme climate events, like actually being able to share information quickly with people, mm-hmm. you know, all around a, a large area is going to be very important. Um, I would love it if that was a non-commercial, decentralized, some kind of network that wasn't didn't have a financial incentive to keep you on it all the time. But I would also love it if it had some kind of yeah grounding in time and place. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a really good quote in the book that I that I pulled out about social media, and you're kind of talking about this illusion of learning that we have, and we're consuming information via you know Twitter, Instagram, mm-hmm. or Facebook all day. Um, Because we're getting bombarded with words, but in reality, uh, you write, quote, the sum total is nonsense, and it produces not understanding, but a dull and stupefying dread. Um, And then, so in contrast, you discuss how, like, when you're exploring nature, you get a deeper understanding of yourself, the world around you. So um, I'm just wondering if, like, you have thoughts on kind of regulating the information you take in. Like, how do you find that balance between knowing what's going on in the kind of world around you that is fed to you through the media that, you know, it's important for people to understand, but then the other stuff, the the natural systems of the world and 
you know, the, the birds. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, the bird thing is involuntary. I <laughs> am very easily distracted by birds. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so at the end of the second chapter, I talk about Thomas Merton, who um, was a Catholic, basically hermit, who wrote a lot about um, political and social issues from his basically hermitage. And he becomes sort of this figure for me of thinking about how to participate while remaining at a kind of conceptual remove. Um, and, and that remove is important for being able to imagine something better. Um, so like holding something in your mind's eye while still um, having a responsibility to and living in the world as it is. And I, it's, a really, it's really difficult. Um, I think mm-hmm. it's like something that I feel like I'm still trying to work out like every day. It's like, what is that balance? Like I know that I need time to process the information that I'm getting and to think about, you know, what I actually think about that. I also think we need a lot more time to talk to others about that information, to have like real conversations about that. Um, and that's the time that I'm sort of worried about. Uh, and obviously that also takes space. Um, so I don't know, on a personal level, it's just, yeah, it's something I feel like I'm negotiating still. But knowing that just like sleep um, is is a, something that is, necessary for our survival and waking life um, time away to just process information and reflect is also necessary. Yeah, yeah. I was actually just thinking about you. Last week I was riding home uh, around Lake Merritt, like late at night, kind of a route that I don't normally take. I usually will take, you know, the bike lanes around the sidewalk, but I was riding along the kind of perimeter of the lake, like right against the water. And there's that one section now where they've got all the fake heron noises that they crank up at night. So the story is they, um, there used to be all these night herons that lived, which I, night herons are one of Jenny's favorite birds. They're really big in the book. They yeah. kind of look like footballs. And uh, <laughs> they, there used to be all these night herons that lived across the street from the post office on like 14th by the library. And then the, the trees were cut down uh, to make room for new development, unfortunately. And the people of Oakland, I guess it's the parks department, they were trying to lure the herons away from downtown towards Lake Merritt. So they have these fake like bird mannequins. And then at night they turn on a fake heron noise, which I'm not gonna try to do. Maybe you, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know. I was just thinking, cause like, you know, there's this kind of push and pull on nature and technology. That's one yeah. of the themes of your book. Yeah. And there's this question of, obviously it's not like an anti-technology book. It's yeah. about, you know, not letting technology control us and dominate us and, um, I, I guess, I don't know what the question is, but I'm just thinking if you have any thoughts on... Uh, on like yeah, high-tech just, night herons. Yeah, high-tech, what do you think about high-tech night herons? <laughs> I really want one of those decoys. Is is the noise coming from the decoys, or is that separate? I think there's a speaker that okay. they like, hide in the trees. There's a separate speaker system that they set up. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, um, before, we, before we open it up for the audience q and I'll just ask one more question. And I wanted to finish our conversation at the same place that you finished the book, which is at the Port of Oakland, specifically Middle Shoreline Harbor Park. And you Mm -hmm. talk about how that park was, or where that park is now was once a place of manufacturing, specifically manufacturing to support the war effort, Mm -hmm. and how it's been changed over the years, now it's a park, and that there's this observation tower named after Chapel R. Hayes, who was a resident of West Oakland, who was an activist, who was fighting the port for many years, trying to get them to reduce their pollution, their pollution that was going into uh, West Oakland and causing asthma and cancer and all kinds of health defects. And 
Yeah, I guess I'm just wondering because I, I really like that story, and I actually didn't know about Chapel Hay, mm -hmm. so thank you for mm -hmm. you know sh teaching me some Oakland history. And I'm just wondering why you felt that the very end of the book was the right place for that story. Why did you choose that to conclude with? Um, I think that that park kind of because of the observation tower, um, and also because it's a basically a place of habitat restoration. It really tied together two different examples of manifest dismantling for me. Like one is, you know, basically community activism and the other one is, is you know, trying to create a habitat for life to come back, um, it, which seems to have been successful. But if you yeah. go there, I mean, there's tons of birds. And um, I really was struck when I went there by my own feeling of gratitude, you know, A, for this person who had done all of this work and then for the recognition of this person's work. But also this, you know, if you've been there, it's like very, it's right up against the port. I mean, you can You're see, surrounded by the cranes. Yeah, it's super yeah. loud um, and you're very much in the middle of it. And it feels so unlikely in that space to look and see so many different kinds of birds. I mean, these are birds that like bird nerds would like go, you know, travel long distance to see. And like, you know, here they're just, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. It's like I wasn't expecting to see them that day. Well, the, like, the path that anyone has to take to get out there is you're basically, you know, I ride my bike out there pretty frequently and you ride through m literally miles of just like industrial landscape. I mean, on both sides of you, there's a fence, there's containers stacked on both sides, there's cranes, there's a rail yard. And um, there used to be more people that hung out there because there would be uh, drag racing out there and sideshows, oh. but they put speed bumps up so people can't drag race anymore. Um, so it's like a lot, on, the, on the weekdays, it's filled with, you know, semi-trucks, uh, 18 wheelers. But now if you go on the, the weekends, it's like desolate, usually very quiet. And then all of a sudden, after miles of riding through this industrial zone, you just come across this park where there's giant flocks of birds and pelicans diving into the yeah. bay. And yeah. yeah, it's really special. And hawks, because there's also lots of squirrels there. So squirrels and hawks. Um, yeah, I, and I, um, I end it by talking about the pelicans because... Um, I, you know, the pelican, the design of a pelican has not changed for like millions and millions of years. Um, and then looking at them and then seeing like the Salesforce tower in the background, that's basically like the comparison that I make at the end where it's like, there is a sort of like givenness to just like this property of life that is like the thing that I keep coming back to. And that um, I think like the book is really just me trying to share this, like something that I found personally as a kind of life raft in this moment, um, that there's always something that right in front of you that you can grab onto that feels very different and is doesn't really need any justification and is unrelated to ideas of productivity and progress. It just simply is. Um, and so the pelicans for me, especially as, as a species that was endangered um, and it's kind of made a comeback, yeah. very inspiring for me. Yeah. Excellent. All right, thank you. Thanks. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of EBY Q&A. Thanks again to Katie McMurrin for recording this event and to Wolfman Books for hosting us. By the way, Wolfman is the only place where you can still buy copies of my long-lost Oakland map, and supplies are running low. So if you want to get one, go down to 410 13th Street and scoop it up quick. 
the uh, long lost Oakland map actually gets mentioned in How to Do Nothing. Thank you very much. So uh, it's now officially got the Jenny Odell stamp of approval. Very prestigious, very fancy. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday Q&A. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Uh, if you want to see photos of some of the stuff we talked about in this episode, check out eastbayyesterday.com. Thanks again to everyone supporting this show on Patreon. I've gotten a few new supporters since the last time, so shout out to the following awesome people. Taryn Moore, Rosemary Alonzo, Leslie Allen, Doug Rubart, Shannon Delp, Julia Clark Riddell, Ben Clash, Britt Tanner, Blue Tango Project, Hope Friedman, Dashka DeCleva, Jerry Buchanan, Deanna Tibbs, Evangeline Lowry, Stephen Guerin, Aaron Magyesi, Tay Bashiki, MC, Laura Atkins, Tom Dooner, CJ Hirschfield, and Sean Neely. Your generosity is what allows me to keep making this show. Uh, I'm looking forward to meeting some of you in person at my upcoming walking tour for Patreon supporters or at one of my other events coming up this summer. Uh, even if you can't afford to support the show financially, hey, do me a big favor and spread the word. Uh, I don't have any money for marketing, so it really helps when people tell their friends about East Bay Yesterday on social media or in person. Uh, the music for this episode came from Deeb. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back very soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday. <laughs>